Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. Happy New Year to you. This is not normal Mike McDaniel voice, if you don't know that. Uh, listen, I am, I am so glad you're here. Happy New Year. And you may be the only ones who get the message today because I don't know that I will be here for the second service. We may have to record it. In fact, we are recording it just in case I can't make it to the very end. But anyway, glad to have you here. Glad it's the New Year. And I hope that you are anticipating an incredible year because it's going to be full of awesome opportunities and incredible challenges all along the way. And uh, one of those opportunities I've got to make you aware of is what we have, what we call around here Discipleship University. Now it launches, it launched last fall, and we had an incredible uh, group of people go through how to study the Bible. We're launching our second course this uh, in fact, this month, in a couple of weeks, an Old Testament survey with the Old Testament survey professor being one of my Old Testament professors, my favorite Old Testament professor. He's going to come and teach all the way through the Old Testament on Sunday afternoons over the course of three Sundays. All the information's online. If you're interested in it, sign up for it and be a part of that. Tomorrow, the first homework assignment drops in the inbox. So sign up today, be ready for it. It's going to take the Bible hopefully to a new level of appreciation and love and understanding of its one great big story and we get to be a part of it. And uh, so anyway, that, that kicks it off. But think about what if I could in a deep scholastic scholarly level study through the entire Bible in a year. Now, a lot of you are reading through the Bible in a year. Great. Or you're doing the Bible recap in your small group. That's all great. What if you could take it even to a new level and understand and study the Bible from the Old Testament beginning in a couple of weeks all the way through the revelation that we're going to have in January of next year. So this is the course schedule for all of Discipleship University for the coming year. And so literally we're bringing in, no kidding you, some of the best scholars in the New Testament and the Old Testament, I think, uh, that will be here teaching through the Bible. And e- yes, we are even going to embark on the beautiful revelation in the coming year, 2025, all right, if Jesus doesn't come between now and then. And so think about that. Pray that he comes as well. Uh, but uh, anyway, th- there's opportunities abound. They're all over. And I hope that in 2024, uh, I look out into the future and I go, there are opportunities for good and there are opportunities for ill. And so let us make the best of those opportunities. One of the things that Lori and I want to do in the coming year is we want to, and again, I'm talking us into this, we want to, is we're putting our name in the lottery to climb Mount Whitney, the tallest free stand, the tallest mountain in the lower 48. And so we're putting our name in the lottery, that's something you can pray for, uh, that we will be able to climb. We climb Mount Kilimanjaro for our 25th, uh, 
wedding anniversary. And there's something about mountain climbing, maybe it's the light, lighter oxygen in the air, I don't know, that you feel like you're connected to God. But actually, when you read through the scriptures, you find that Jesus himself is constantly climbing mountains. In fact, when you look in the New Testament, you find that 29 times in the Gospels, four Gospels, Jesus is either climbing up a mountain or coming down from a mountain. He's climbing up a mountain to pray for his disciples. He's climbing up a mountain to teach. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, he teaches some of his most important messages on mountaintops. Whenever... Five of them exactly. And then whenever you look at when, when, in those high places throughout the scriptures, they, they, God kind of meets people in those high places. It, it was Elijah on Mount Carmel. It was Moses on Mount Sinai. It was the, 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 the three, uh, disciples, Matt, uh, excuse me, um, <laughs> Peter, James, and John that were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so you have these mountain experiences where God shows up. Where we today are launching into a study of messages from a mountain. From the mountain that has been called the Sermon on the Mount. And whether it was exactly a high, tall mountain with snow caps and all that kind of stuff, probably not. But it was one of those where Jesus climbs up to this mountain, he sets down, and he begins to give his most detailed message that he gives. In this encounter with his disciples on the, on, on, on that mountain. Now, let's back up. That's chapter five of Matthew. So be finding that in your Bibles. We'll be there in a moment. But to get the context of it, we gotta go to chapter four. When you go to chapter four, you get a picture of the ministry of Jesus in just a few short chapters of how it is just blowing and going. It is up and to the right. He has got a great Crowd, it says in the scriptures. A great crowd followed from Galilee. That's just one area. That's in the north. One area, a great crowd from Galilee began to follow him. And from the Dicopolis, that was in the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. So you have north of the Sea of Galilee. You have southeast of the Sea of Galilee. You've got Jerusalem, that's in the southern part of, uh, of Israel. Then you've got Judea, which is even further south, even includes, encompasses the Dead Sea. And then beyond the Jordan. So literally, Jesus is going to all these places, and all along the way, a great crowd of people are following him. Now, that's a good thing. It's good to see crowds of people, right? That's good. Crowds are good, but what Jesus is about, discipleship. Disciples are great. We're talking in this series of messages about moving from good to great, about from being just a part of the crowd. There's a crowd in this room right now. There's a crowd watching online right now. There's a crowd. But I have to ask, and we have to ask, am I, are you, Are we disciples? Crowds are one thing. Crowds are good. But disciples is what is great. And Jesus had a lot of fans, but he didn't always have a lot of followers. People who were bought in to the ministry that he was about. Whenever we come to this, we understand that Jesus could draw a crowd, but what Jesus was really interested in was making disciples. He had fans, but he really wanted followers. Crowds look at Jesus, but disciples look like Jesus. Jesus is wanting people to look like him. So let us 
in 2024, talk about the opportunities in front of us. And let us lay the foundation today that what we really want to be, hopefully today, is that we don't want to just be a part of the crowd and a fanboy of Jesus. We want to be a follower of Jesus, looking like Jesus all along. If you have your Bibles and you find Matthew chapter 5, and again, we got three chapters that we're going to take the next several months. We're going to take literally January, February, and March, and we're going to look at three chapters, again, of this Sermon on the Mount. When you come to verse 1, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Again, Jesus is a mountain climbing Jesus, right? And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, that is what launches into, from this point forward, is what I want to call the Magna Carta of Jesus' ministry. What Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount is nothing less than the absolute bare necessities, the minimum standards of what Jesus is calling us up to. And he is going to encompass it all in there. One person said it like this. The Sermon on the Mount is literally the summary of all the four Gospels. It's like the spark notes. You want to spark notes on the four Gospels? Read the Sermon on the Mount. But if you want to know the spark note of the spark notes, you want to know the, the, the summary of the summary, read the Beatitudes. And that's where we're going to look at for the next two weeks is the Beatitudes. Because what Jesus starts his message in, this all-famous message, this all-important message with his mountain-climbing disciples, is he starts it with the Beatitudes. Now, I like the way the message paraphrases this one verse. It says, when Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed the hillside. Those who apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. I want to ask you, are you a valley dweller or are you a mountain climber? Are you going to be a fan? Are you going to be a follower? Are you going to be a part of the crowd? Are you going to be a part of the committed? Are you going to be a disciple of Christ or just in a great big group of people? And this 2021, I hate to keep capitalizing on it, but I know a lot of us do. Let's capitalize on it. Let's, let's do what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. What we have been talking about, if you haven't been with us or you have been with us, you hopefully will see the intentionality of where we've come as a church just over the past fall. Since the fall, we've been talking about, in August, we talked about the, 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 the number one tool that God uses in his toolbox to build our lives, and it is this tool right here. We have it in our toolbox, we have it on our phones, we have it in our homes. Some people carry it in their cars, they have it on their desk on the job, but sometimes it sets like that all week long. But that tool that God gives us is so, so important that you do not want to miss the number one tool. The second thing is the foundation. What we did in August, we talked about the tool. The second thing we talked about was the foundation that he's going to build on. He's going to build it on the values, what's really, really important. Your values are your foundation. Now, we talked about it from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that if we love God and love people, then we are nailing, we are building a foundation and then Jesus adds another one in in the New Testament when he tells us to go to all the nations. We sum it up really simply like this. Know God, love people, and live sent. 
It's more than banners in the hallway. It's literally the values that we believe that are in Scripture that we want to help infuse into your life, your kid's life, and into the future. If you will know know God in a meaningful love relationship, and if you will love people around you, even the people you don't like to love, even your enemies, Jesus said, then you'll be moving yourself forward to being able to live sin in this world and make an impact. Then we talked about the rhythms, the cadences, the structures that we need to put in our life to build this home. The foundations give us security for the future. The homing, the framing, the building it up, the rhythms, the cadences, the the rule of life. We talked about internal, inward rule of life that leads to an outward rule of life. These are all messages that we talked about in the fall. But they've all been leading up to a house that's complete, built on a foundation of values given to us by God. Where did we get those values? We got them from this book right here. And we're going to build the rest of our life from the tool of this, what's sometimes called the sword of God, the word of God. What are we going to do? We got to move in, right? We gotta move into this beautiful home. We gotta make it our home. We've gotta make it beautiful. And that's where we're going in the Sermon on the Mount. Because if we're gonna talk about the four gospels being the, uh, the, the snapshot or the summary is, is in the Sermon on the Mount, then by all means, let's go to the, let's go to the spark notes and let us dive into them and begin to understand them. Now listen, this is not just me. There's a lot of people. Oswald Chambers said it like this. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is the statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. When the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us, read that in reverse, and the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us, we will have that reality be true because we're anchoring it in the Sermon on the Mount. Dallas Willard, who I fully respect, the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the kind of a person we will become when we abandon ourselves to Jesus Christ. Augustine wrote an entire commentary in the 300s AD. He wrote an entire commentary on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He said it is the perfect measure of the Christian life. So 300 AD to the present, people are saying the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely something that we need to anchor ourselves into. In these three chapters, we're going to spend some time. But again, we're going to start today and we're going to go next week into the Beatitudes. What is a beatitude? An attitude that ought to be really profound, right? Now, you'll not find the the, the title beatitude in the text. That's what scholars, that's what people for our time have called the beatitudes. But now, it's not going to be your normal attitudes, I'll promise you this. Now, you're, it will, it will ha- be, be a true attitude that you will have, but here's what we ought to understand about attitudes is a life principle here for you. If you're new to us, I try to bring these out from time to time, and this is why I'm summing it up in one simple statement. A person's attitude is how you see life and how they see you in life, how those around you see you in life. Because here's what the attitude is. It's how you see life and then how you go and project life out there. Well, what happens is your projection of of life becomes your front man, becomes your advanced man, becomes the advanced man that other people see and experience you sometimes before you even get in the room. Think about that. 
This is what John Maxwell said. He said, your attitude is your advance man of your true selves, of our true selves. Every one of these be attitudes starts with a blessing. I want you to understand that is an important thing. The grace of God is how he brings us into relationship. It's always been the grace of God. We're only saved by the grace of God. Abraham believed and he was reckoned to him righteousness. All through time, it has only been about the grace of God. And here we see in the Sermon on the Mount, blessing after blessing, nine times in nine verses does he give us a blessing. Now, the way you understand the blessing is understanding the meaning of it. Okay, sometimes we say, I bless you when you sneeze. No. Sometimes we say blessing over a meal. No. It actually means something so much more than that. It means to be flourishing in your life. It means to be fortunate in your life. It literally actually means to be happy. Now, I don't like the word happy, and a lot of people don't like the word happy because in the English language, we have dumbed down the word happy. We have cheapened the word happy. So let me just leave it at flourishing, okay? Let me leave it at fortunate. Let me leave it at blessing and give you the idea that what God wants for your life and my life is he wants us to live a blessed life. This goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. This goes back to Psalm chapter 1, verse verse 1. Well, all through Scripture, God has been trying to get us back to what? A flourishing life. A life of Sabbath. A life of serenity. A life of shalom. He's been trying to get us back to that life. And that's why he says, again, nine times in nine verses, blessed, 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 flourishing, flourishing, flourishing. It's what we're called to flourishing. It's what he has for us. But when you look at the Beatitudes, you need to see them as they're structured. It starts with a blessing each time, and it moves to the attitude. And then it ends with a promise. Now, I'll tell you right now, we're not going to focus any more on the blessing. Otherwise, you just need to understand we're talking about flourishing, okay? But we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the promise. That's God's end, okay? The middle part's our part. What attitude are we going to have? How are we going to approach God? How are we going to be in this relationship with God? I want to give you the four attitudes. And by the way, these are very unconventional in their wisdom. But let's first of all read the entire passage, uh, Matthew chapter 5. And it said, and seeing the crowds, he went on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed. Here's the first one. In fact, every time you see the word blessed, I want you to say it with me. Okay. Let me turn back. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Oh, sorry, I got to read it now. Uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets 
who were before you. And when you look at this passage of scripture and you look at, again, the blessing, the attitude, and then the promise, again, you can focus on the promise, but really what you need to focus on is the part that you bring to the table. And it's the reality of what is the attitude that I need to have when it comes to my relationship with the world, others, and God. Here are the attitudes. The first four that we're going to talk about this week are internal attitudes. The second four we'll talk about next week are more external. So we'll talk about the internal ones. One is bankruptcy. How many of y'all wanted to have that as your attitude today? Loss, humility, and craving. Not exactly the attitude list that you were probably expecting. I did old chat GPT uh, and asked him because he knows everything these days. I asked him, I said, what does it take to make someone happy today? It was interesting. None of the Beatitudes were listed. Not a single one, not even close. Did anyone say bankruptcy? So let's talk about what bankruptcy is and looks like. That's the number one. The first one that he tells us, he says, poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for what does it say next? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't get much more different than that. Here over here over here is poverty. Here over here over here is the kingdom of heaven. You can draw a line from infinity and you will probably not touch those two extremes. We're not just talking about poverty over here. Well, let's start with the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, because that's going to be a theme throughout the book of Matthew. We'll come back and talk about that in a few weeks. I want to put that there. But right here, when you come to poverty, that means what poverty means today. That means bankruptcy. That means I, I don't have enough to cover my bills. That means I don't have enough to make it through life. That means I don't, I can't in myself fix my financial problem. What do you do? You go for bankruptcy. Now, this is not bankruptcy of the dollars and cents in the account because a lot of you have a lot of money in your 401ks, in your in your alternative side incomes, and in the things that you like to do in the discretionary life that you live. That's great. But this is not talking about poverty of, of, of wealth. This is poverty of spirit. This is internal. Deep in your soul, there's a poverty. See, you can't appreciate the wealth of God's kingdom until you have first discovered the poverty of your own soul. I had a friend of mine who had to file for bankruptcy one time. And I can remember sitting down and having coffee with him. And yes, I paid for the coffee that day. Um, and it was very real for him. He had done everything he could because he did not want the stigma. He did not want the label. He did not want to go through that. He didn't want to take his family through that. And he was working through it. But he literally just reached the point, I can't. I've been as creative as I can be creative. I've worked as many jobs as I can work. And he did. He had worked several jobs all at one time, but just couldn't get it. Whether it's the economy of 08 or it was the situation that he's in, I, I'm not here to analyze that. I'm just here to be with a brother who's in pain. And I can remember the phrase that he said. He said, I just had to give up. I just had to give up. You know what? Every one of us has to reach the point in our life. Every single one of us has to reach the point in our life when they say, I can't fix me. I can't 
fix the emptiness. I can't fix the shallowness. I can't fix the pain. I can't fix me. And I need help. And until we get to that point, until we reach the end of our rope, we'll never know who's really holding the rope. Until we reach that poverty of spirit, we'll never be able to get from it. The message paraphrases this verse. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. The reality is we don't think of a good, bankrupt spirit is what we need to be happy. But Jesus says that's the pathway. That's the first step. It's like we've got to go backward before we go forward. We've got to go down before we can go up. We've got to empty ourselves and come to the end of ourselves. A student at Penn State posted a a, a note on his door and had pictures of his iPad, his his LED TV, his gaming console, and he put for sale. And then underneath it, he said, all in excellent condition. Nothing is broke except for me. It's like you look at your life and on the outside and the way you present it, it might look as nothing is broke. But when we go in your spirit, how is that? Because every one of us is broke until we have met Jesus. And then in that broken state, we can begin to climb out. But first of all, we have to experience the loss. And that loss is the attitude, the realizing that mourning and that I, 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 I can't get there. And, and I'll never be able to get there. And I can't fix myself. But literally he said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So it's like I have to keep the end of my rope so I can know that God is actually the one holding the rope. I have to mourn so that I can encounter the, the comforter who comforts me. Charles Spurgeon said about the Beatitudes, he said they are arranged in a stair-like order. And to climb to one, you must step on the one below it. So the very first step that we must take is into poverty of spirit and understanding that I need Jesus. The second one is mourning and realizing that I, I'm broken and I need help. And it literally touches deep inside of your soul. It goes deep inside of you. Ezra 10, 1, Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down. This is where it begins to become emotional. This is whenever you, you, you realize that you've done wrong and that you need a healer. You need help. You need Jesus. Weeping and casting himself down in the house of God. Paul said, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? He told the church at Corinth that you ought to be rather, you ought to be mourning and not, not arrogant as you are. David said when he sinned, he said, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep thy law. I want to ask you, how are you emotionally? Have you grieved over your own brokenness? Listen, this is the great thing about it. Verse four said, he will comfort us. He comes to us. He comforts us when we mourn. That is where where he begins to do some of his beautiful work, a broken 
and contrite heart. Hebrews 51, 17. If you want to write something in the margin of your Bible right next to blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, write Psalm 51, verse 17. A broken spirit. A broken and contrite, oh God. Heart, oh God, you will not despise. Here's the thing about, I want you to hear me really clearly on this. Please, please, please. God is not going to shame you. He doesn't want you to feel the shame, the guilt. He doesn't. But we have to go there so that he can begin to comfort us. The healing process starts when we are first broken and poor in spirit. We are mourning and then he begins to come in and begins to heal our hearts. There was a time in my life when I was running for about nine months. I was running as far away from God. I wasn't angry with God. I just didn't want God, okay? I was running and running and running. And I was doing whatever I wanted to do for nine months. And I was pretty happy for six of those nine months. And then all of a sudden, things began to change. Even even Moses said that the passing pleasures of sin. There's a passing pleasures of sin. So for about six months, I was pretty pretty happy in my sin. Then it began to all unravel for me. And then it began to fall apart, and I ended up in a dark pit. And I can remember in my bedroom, in my home, with my face buried in the carpet. We had green carpet at the time. This is a long time ago. We had green carpet. My face was buried in the carpet. I remember listening to a song and I heard it and it just was like in my soul. And I still to this day, it's on, I have it on my playlist. And to this day, I still have it right here. Lord, I'm really glad you're here. I hope you feel the same when you see all my fears and how I felt. I fall sometimes. It's hard to walk in shifting sand. I miss the mark and find I've nowhere left to stand. I fall sometimes. Lord, raise my hand so you can lift me up. Hold me close. Hold me tighter. All of a sudden, that song was the prayer of my heart. That was Mike McDaniel in a state of mourning. We all have to reach a poverty of spirit so that we can enter into the loss, so that we can enter into humility. Humility is where we need to be next. It's an attitude that we need to carry with us. And it's not one uh, that's much looked at today. In fact, I would say we're probably more confused with it. We confuse meekness with weakness. We think humiliation is, or humility is humiliation. We don't think that we've got to be self-promoting. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. What a contradiction. I, I, I'm here. It's not bad posture either. It's, it's, it's literally of my spirit that I have realized it's self, well, it's, it's detoxification of self is what humility is. Because everything in this world says it's about you and you need to make it about you and you need to keep it about you. And if you don't, other people are going to run over you. You're going to miss the promotion. You're not going to be chosen for the team. 
Other people are going to be in first place and you're going to be in last. Stop it. Humility is not about me anymore. It's about something so much bigger than me. My life isn't about me. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. This, this phrase, by the way, this word, uh, this word that is used here for gentle or, or meek is actually only used about four times in all the New Testament. One of those times is used in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, when Jesus is referring to himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle. That's the word meek. That's the word humble. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. There are 89 chapters in the Gospels. This is the only verse in all of the Gospels that Jesus describes his own heart. And how does he describe it? As gentle, humble, meek, and lowly. This whole Beatitudes, this whole Sermon on the Mount is us becoming like Jesus. This whole call to discipleship is us becoming like Jesus. It's moving from a fan to a follower. It's us becoming like Jesus. So literally when he's saying this, he's saying, I want you to be like me. What does that mean to be gently and lowly? Dane Orland uh, Orland, uh, wrote a great book, Gentle and Lowly, by that very title. I want to read a paragraph from his book. He said, point... The point is saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in all in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ, gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is, tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. If we are asked to say only one thing of who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus in his own teaching if our answer was Jesus is gentle and lowly. I I, I want to say that we're flipping the script on attitudes today, that if we're going to be like Jesus, it starts with a poverty, a bankruptcy of spirit. It moves to a loss. Yes, I'm mourning my sin, my brokenness, the things that I've done to offend God and, and others. And I'm moving into a spot of humility, which is just like Jesus. When I become the person who's tender and open and welcoming and accommodating and understanding on the job in my marriage with my kids, how does that revolutionize the relationships? How does that make me more flourishing in this life? How does that bring me fulfillment? How does that bring me the blessed life? that God is calling me to. All these four we're talking about today are all internal, which is the next one is craving. Craving. We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. 
whenever you detoxified yourself of yourself, then you can now move into what you really are true substantive food, true substance of satisfaction. Because the next word, the promise after that, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. That's where he's leading us. That's where he's taking us. When we empty ourselves of ourselves, when we move into craving and longing for him, hey, what are you having for lunch today? I know, squirrel. What are you having for lunch today? You going to a buffet? Maybe the Golden Corral? Maybe going, maybe, maybe you're going to hit up one of these local restaurants. And lots of options for you. You know, right now I've already distracted you. You're already thinking, what's lunch? Because what happens is when we get hungry, we get hangry. And we get hangry, nothing else satisfies us until we take care of that hanger. Jesus is saying, hunger, crave my righteousness. See, what righteousness is, is the character and the the conduct of God. It's when we literally take on his character and we take on his conduct. There's imputed to righteousness and there's imparted righteousness. God imputes righteousness to our account so that we can be called sons of God. But we impart righteousness out of our life when we allow the righteousness of God to dwell in us. It's not going to be in you until you hunger for it, long for it. There's so many times in the book of Matthew that he calls us to righteousness. How many times in the scripture, I want to read a few of them. Here in Hebrews, it says this, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all companions. I mean, can you imagine that? That he's literally going to anoint you with so much gladness? Where does it come from? It comes from joy. Where does it come from? It comes from his righteousness. Loving his character. Living his conduct. Paul talked about it in chapter 5 of Romans. He said, present yourself to God. Even the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. We become the righteousness of God and we carry it out into this world. Listen, in this series, From Good to Great, it's going to change your life if you lean into it. One that's going to change is it's going to change your character. It's going to change your conduct because you will begin to take on the righteousness of God and your friends and everyone around you will know it. They will sense it. They will see it. It will become the advanced man, your attitude that walks into the room before you ever even get there. Some of you today want to seize on an opportunity. Here it is. Seize on this opportunity. Give your life to Jesus right here right now say to Jesus Jesus I need you Jesus I want your righteousness I want your character I want your conduct I want to become a part of me but again if you back into this message where does it all start 
with you reaching the end of yourself in the bankruptcy. Is God going to shame you, throw you under the bus? Not at all. He's going to pick you up. He's going to give you his righteousness. I want to read one more verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Amen. Amen. You know, around this room, actually just up here in the front, we have three stations across the back. We have a time where we're going to take the Lord's Supper. You may not be there. You may not be ready. That's okay. Just just stay where you're at. If you're ready in a few moments and you want to get up out of your seat and go and take the cup and take the bread and then move back to your seat or move to these steps or move someplace in the room, give people space to get to the, the, the table and, and make, make a time for you to do some deep reflection on your own character and conduct. It does, does it reflect the righteousness of Christ? How am I going to get there? You're going to get there through Jesus. Do you know him today? Do you, do you love him? Father God, thank you for giving me enough of a voice to make it to this point. But more importantly, Lord, thank you for every soul who's in this room, everyone who's watching online. And Father, the reality is every one of us has to come to a point of bankruptcy. And Lord, if it's right here and now that we come to that point and we say yes to you, Jesus, then let it be this moment. Father, I would pray that everyone in this room would do some soul searching on their own connectedness to you. How much do they look like you, act like you? Are they a part of the crowd? Or are they a part of the disciples? Father, move us from the crowd. Move us to being disciples who look like you. Move us from good to great. Lord, in this space, in this time, would you work on our hearts? Would you help us to know, Lord, if and when it's time to get up and go to the table and take the communion elements to move back? Lord, we pray that you would work in this space and time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me say one more thing. As the band comes and as they lead us in worship, when you go back to your space, this is your time. The service is all over to you now. You and Jesus. And when you are ready, if you're ready, take those elements. Take the bread first. And when you take that bread, remember the body of Christ. The fact that Jesus came to this earth, put on flesh and dwelt among us. Look at the the matzah bread and look at the stripes and the piercings that's in that matzah bread. And remember that verse that we just read, by his wounds were healed. This is your time. Let God work in it.
Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Sent.